words about forgiveness and compassion. <clears throat> and again, I'd, I'd like to invite you to practice uh, staying embodied as you sit and listen. Staying in the body, staying with the breathing. As, as you're probably gathering, um, some of what we're talking about on this retreat is, is for direct sort of application and use during these days. And some of what we're talking is really part of the larger landscape of meta practice. And it may be that these themes that I'm talking about this evening are, are more the latter than the former. They may be, in a sense, to give a, a perspective of what surrounds and, and supports uh, meta, rather than for direct practice on this retreat. You, you're probably... Um, sensing that what we're really trying to encourage is a sense of the buoyancy, the brightness, the uplift of metta. And for that reason, suggesting giving the, the difficult person something of a light touch, given how short this retreat is. But these themes I am talking about this evening do feel that they are relevant on a day when we've been touching into the difficult person practice. And so I hope in some ways they'll nourish your reflections now, but also your practice outside the retreat. You know, as we progress through the, the stages of metta, there can be you know, a, a beautiful sense of the heart's lightness and some ease coming in the body, some sense of well-being, some, some sense of sharing that with our the easiest person and the friend, maybe the neutral person. And then we get to the difficult person and <laughs> the whole thing can suddenly close. You can feel your sort of heart shut and the body gets restless and one feels a bit antsy and um, people were talking in the group today about suddenly having pains that they hadn't experienced before or, or having a, a sudden urge to flee. Um, and all of these are usual experiences when we encounter the difficult. They're, they're part of the way the mind defends itself against the difficult. And of course, on, on retreat, we don't have our usual array of fixes and anesthetics that we apply when we get to something difficult, you know, by turning on the TV or opening the fridge or opening a bottle of wine or checking emails or whatever it happens to be that is your particular trip. You know, it, we don't have those here. And that's part of the opportunity of, of this context is, is actually to practice what's it like to open to the difficult and find more skillful ways of resourcing ourselves to be on those edges. You know, the reason why we, 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 we work with easier people first is, is really to build that sense of resource, to build that sense of well-being, that sense of buoyancy that then resources us as we touch into that, those relationships that are more difficult, <coughs> are more difficult. But I think what that sort of heart-shut moment can often highlight for us, and some of you have mentioned this today, is the deep importance of the work of forgiveness 
that is often seen, traditionally seen, as a preliminary to meta practice. And when we really look, we can see that it's an absolutely necessary condition if our heart feels stuck with difficult memories or resentments or a sense of betrayal from the past. It's an absolutely necessary part of our passage into greater freedom and well-being. There's that story of the the two former prisoners of war meeting. Have you forgiven our captors yet? says one. No, never, says the other. Well then, they still have you in prison. And we can feel so imprisoned by the past, imprisoned by our resentment, our bitterness, our withholding of um, goodwill, whether that's towards other people, towards ourselves, or towards life. And so it does feel really important to consider what forgiveness is and also what it's not because that can also help us to experience an opening into the practice of forgiveness that can be very liberating. So I'd like to to start by suggesting a few things that I think forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not about pretending that something painful hasn't happened. It's not about pretending that something that happened somehow didn't matter or didn't hurt us. Forgiveness can only come through a genuine, authentic acknowledgement, honest acknowledgement that this did hurt, this was painful, this is painful. And it's only by, it's really part of the Four Noble Truths wisdom that it's only by really opening to that sense of pain, that that sense of ouch or much more than ouch, that we can begin to shift our relationship with it and so move in the direction of forgiveness and letting go. Nor, of course, is forgiveness a denial of the validity of anger. We need our no. We need the energy of our no, which anger often empowers. Sometimes we can have a sense of forgiveness as, as in a sense, it can feel quite weak. It can feel like it's just letting somebody get away with the momentum of their willfulness. And actually, I think part of what our uh, resentment or our bitterness or our sense of, of pain is reminding us of is the importance of connecting with our power, of having access to a sense of power and even a, a sense of fiery anger that on occasions can enable us to say a very definite and a very clear no in order to protect ourselves or to protect other people. Forgiveness is not about a bypass of our boundaries, of our strength, 
of our very important sense of protecting what is vulnerable. Nor is forgiveness about letting someone off. Sometimes there can be that sense, well, you know, if I'm if I'm forgiving somebody, then I'm I'm letting them off for something that they did. And now, you know, those of us who are parents or school teachers know that it's very important to be able to forgive and also on occasions to sanction someone. It may even be important to forgive somebody and ring the police on occasions. Forgiveness doesn't mean letting off. Nor does forgiveness mean that we have to continue to relate to someone who's hurt us. There's a a saying from Kabir who says, don't put anybody out of your heart, to which one Dharma teacher added, though you may need to put them out of your life. So forgiveness doesn't mean that we have to continue to relate or, or communicate with someone who's hurt us. And of course, for our, our deeper pains and hurts and sense of betrayal, forgiveness is not a quick process. Or it certainly may not be a quick process. Some of you may have heard of or seen the work of the Forgiveness Project, which is a very inspiring project collecting together stories of forgiveness around the world. And they, they have a, a very powerful exhibition that, that they take to... Well, they brought it to the school where I teach, um, but they also take it into, into prisons uh, and to, to places of worship and uh, they have an online gallery of these stories, which I really commend to you, uh, the, F- the Forgiveness Project. And, and what we read in, in those stories is accounts of people working through, doing the work of forgiveness, working through what feel like layers of anger and fear and grief, and sometimes coming to a place where they can forgive and sometimes not. Sometimes really one of the things I think that's so powerful about that, that exhibition is it really acknowledges that this is painful work and we may, not, we may not reach the place where we can forgive for a long time. Another thing just to say really is that people sometimes say, well, I'll forgive if they say they're sorry. And the more we look at what forgiveness does and what it is, the more we can see that that is, in fact, to give the other person the keys to our own freedom and happiness. They may never say they're sorry. And actually, we may need to claim our own freedom, our own right to free ourselves from the imprisonments of the past. Because ultimately forgiveness comes or we open to it when we see the pain of holding on to our bitterness. When we see the pain of holding to the past. It's sometimes said that bitterness and resentment are like a poison that we drink hoping that it will hurt someone else. 
and there was a book title that came out about 10 years ago called The Lost Art of Forgiveness, Stories of Healing from the Cancer of Bitterness. And don't we just know how bitterness or resentment or hurt or pain can begin to take us over, can begin to spread and infect other areas of our lives. Forgiveness, Jack Cornfield says, weigh the true cost of resentment and bitterness to the heart and then choose. Weigh the true cost of forgiveness and bitterness to the heart and then choose. And he also sometimes says, forgiveness is giving up hope of a better past. Giving up hope of a better past. So what is it? It, It's this letting go of ill will and a desire for harm. It's coming to a place where we can wish someone well or at the least not wish them harm despite what they've done. And as I say, sometimes it's ourselves that we need to forgive. And in the traditional forgiveness practices, there are the different categories that we can work through. The forgiveness that we need to ask from others, in which we might bring to mind ways in which we know that we have been a catalyst for pain and suffering in others. And we feel the pain of that ourselves. And maybe visualizing them, we say to them, I ask your forgiveness. I ask your forgiveness. And then there's the category of forgiving ourselves and we sense the ways in which we have betrayed ourselves or abandoned ourselves or not looked after ourselves or done things that we know have been harmful to ourselves. And again, we feel the pain of that and then see if it's possible to to say to ourselves, I forgive myself, I forgive myself. And then also we bring to mind people who have been catalysts for pain in us and we practice forgiving them. And as I say, this is a practice that takes time. It's a practice that can really, we need to be very patient with and very gentle with and acknowledge where we feel. And often if we're really in the, in the body, we can feel where we get to an edge and we're not ready to move beyond that. But it's a practice, as I say, that you might like to use in daily life, your practice outside this retreat for, for working with where you feel that sense of the need for forgiveness. And there are important Dharma insights that really can help support our practice of forgiveness around the sense of causation and what really causes suffering 
and what enables somebody to cause suffering. Uh, And Rob touched on some of these earlier on today. And there are just two that I'd like to highlight. When we really look at what causes an event of any kind, including an event of betrayal or even cruelty, we can see that the causes are many and various. They're highly complex. Our actions are affected by our genes, by our upbringing, by our culture, by our education, by events that happen to us. And when we cause suffering, so often that's coming out of suffering. The poet Longfellow said, if we could read the secret, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And the more we look, we can see that it is understanding understanding the complexity that gives rise to our actions, that heals. And this, is, of course, is the, is the power of some of the restorative justice programs that are coming into schools and into prisons where perpetrators of crimes and victims of crimes meet each other and tell their stories to each other. And they've been shown to be powerfully transformative in terms of healing and bringing about forgiveness as both perpetrators and victims really hear and come to understand the suffering that has surrounded the crimes that have been committed. And in our own lives too, we can, we can become aware of, of how the suffering we have caused has come from complexity. It's come from confusion. It's come from numbness. It's come out of our own pain. And of course we can see that when we really reflect. We can see that in the suffering that we have been caused as well or that has been been done to us. And, And the second reflection is really, as Rob was saying earlier, this sense that somebody who's causing suffering is themselves, someone who's causing suffering for others, is causing suffering for themselves. You know, we can say, well, what do actions of betrayal, unkindness, cruelty, what do they cultivate for the heart? They deepen a groove of, of insensitivity, of preoccupation, of numbness. And that in terms of our long-term well-being or the long-term being, well-being of those who cause suffering, we can really see that, 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 that such actions don't support that. And the, this has been a really powerful um, reflection for the Tibetan people. There are these amazing stories that some of you may be familiar with of how these Tibetan monks and nuns have, have been imprisoned sometimes for years or decades and have been tortured and yet seem to have come through that relatively unscarred. And time and again, 
what they say is, it was my compassion practice for the people who were imprisoning and torturing me that saved me. Because I was able to to have a sense of compassion for the suffering that they were causing themselves. There was an occasion when when I heard a monk being asked, he was speaking in London, I heard a monk being asked, what were you most afraid of during those times you were in prison? And he said, I was most afraid that I would lose my compassion for those who were imprisoning me. Because I knew that if I did that, I would really go mad. And so this reflection on, on, on the, the, the pain that... that causing suffering brings to those who do that is I think an important part of deepening our sense of compassion for the sort of common humanity that we share with all other people and that causes us all at times to do acts of harm the 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 Russian writer and uh, peace activist Alexander Solzhenitsyn said if only it were so simple If only there were evil people somewhere else insidiously committing evil deeds and it was simply necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Now we may need to translate the language of good and evil into more Buddhist terms such as Buddha nature and ignorance. But what he says I think still has, uh, you know, and, until we're fully enlightened, we, we all have ignorance. We all have the capacity for insensitivity. And so we see that forgiveness is ultimately a, a deep act of compassion for ourselves and for the world. And I would would like to move on now and say a few words about compassion. As I think may have been said, the metta is one of four sublime states that the Buddha points to. Four states that he describes as limitless, that have a deep joy about them, a deep sense of freedom about them. They're called the four Brahma Viharas, and Brahma Vihara means Vihara means a dwelling, Brahma means of the gods. Though Sharon Salzberg likes to describe that as translate that as our best home, that these four states describe our best home. And and they are this quality of metta that we're focusing on in this retreat. Compassion or karuna. Joy, or mudita, as it's called, and equanimity, or upeka. <clears throat> and as I say, um, this retreat is is very much focused on the practice of metta. And it's been interesting today to, to in some of the uh, group discussions, people finding the, the sense of what happens when metta encounters suffering. So metta meets suffering and morphs into karuna or compassion. 
just as when metta meets joy, it morphs into mudita. When it meets something uplifting, it, it morphs into mudita. So metta, if you like, is the sort of home base, uh, which, which other Brahma Viharas, the, the other two, Karuna and uh, Mudita, they, they arise from metta. And as I say, we're really, we're really encouraging you on these few days together, really to keep working at the buoyancy and the uplift of metta. But it was so interesting to see how, how today how as our sense of metta deepens, so our capacity for compassion quickens and becomes alive. So, so compassion is the heart's natural response to suffering when we're not preoccupied with self or caught up in a sense of self-image. I notice that, 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 that busyness can be a great block to compassion and that part of what happens in an uh, environment like this is there isn't so much busyness, there's not so much to do and so compassion can more naturally arise. And sometimes I think of it as a bit like, like a bell that, that, you know, when the bell is full of, of other things, you know. Uh, yeah, sorry? I hope, I hope it works as well. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Ah, very good. You know, we encounter suffering, and what happens, we haven't got any capacity to resonate, have we? <laughs> Whereas, <laughs> this sense of, it's a beautiful idea of compassion as resonance. You know, we, we, if the heart is open enough, is unpreoccupied enough, is not busy, if there's a sense of mindfulness and presence, we just have to encounter some sense of suffering and there's this real sense of resonance. This real sense of opening to and, and almost vibrating with the quality that we're encountering in another person or in an animal. And compassion has these two aspects to it. It has this receptive aspect. Like the bell, open, empty present, able to resonate with what it meets. And then it also has a responsive aspect to it. So from, from the resonance, from that sense of really sensing what's happening, really feeling the pain of another, sensing the, the suffering in another, a sense of response can arrive, a, a move to alleviate and this is beautifully represented in the images of, of Avalokiteshvara, who uh, Rob mentioned the other day, also known as Kuan Yin. And there's a beautiful statue of Kuan Yin here we see. And the word Avalokiteshvara, um, which gets translated into the Chinese as Kuan Yin, means the one who listens to the sounds of the world 
the one who listens to the cries of the world. Some people add, the one who listens to the cries of the world with ease and equanimity. And this points to some really important qualities that are part of the quality of compassion. A sense of listening, a sense of receptivity. Why does Kuan Yin have the sublime smile, the sense of ease? Because compassion also is infused with a sense of equanimity, the the fourth of those sublime states I was mentioning. And the equanimity comes from a real sense of seeing what causes suffering and what ends suffering. There's a real sense of balance as well, a real sense of acceptance that this is how things are. And you can sense, we can sense in ourselves that this, these are possibilities for all of us. That there are times when we've, we've encountered suffering and been able to have a certain spaciousness, a certain bigger perspective. Again, it's a sort of parental quality where we see the, what, what's an absolute crisis for a five-year-old. We, we can see a bigger perspective that knows that actually things are okay. And so there's this, this gesture in compassion which has all these, this spaciousness, which has this equanimity, which has this acceptance. And then on some statues and representations of Kuan Yin, there are a thousand hands and a thousand arms and hands representing all the different ways in which we can respond to suffering. And each of the hands has an eye in the middle of it, which represents the sense of presence, the sense of mindfulness that we can bring as we encounter suffering. And each of the hands carries some different representation of a response. One of the hands often carries a a, a vase of dew that can be poured on the suffering to bring a sense of cooling, a sense of easing, a sense of calming. Sometimes there's a willow branch, which is a way of blessing, which is really a sense of giving a, a tenderness, a love. Sometimes there's a sword or an axe or a bow and arrow. And what this represents is that, is that compassionate response can take many, many different forms. It doesn't just take a sort of soothing, calming. It can take a really strong response. It can take a really strong no. Like I was saying when we were talking about forgiveness, you know, sometimes our really strong, even our fiery, no is actually an act of compassion. And so there's a great versatility to compassion. There's a great sense of, of a, a wide range of possible responses when we really tune in, when we really listen, when we really resonate with the truth of a situation. You know, I think one of the... the, the we often find it difficult. One of the enemies of compassion, one of the what are called the near enemies, so the states into which compassion easily falls, is the state of fear, 
where we encounter suffering and we find it overwhelming. And so we reach in very quickly and our response or our reaction, we could say, comes more from our inability to be with the suffering of another person than really from a place of wisdom. And so, so this sense of, of, of the listening of Kuan Yin, the sense of presence, a sense of equanimity, and then allowing the response to arise within that, I think can be a real inspiration for us as we practice compassion. There's a Zen story about a student asking an aged, uh, awakened Zen master, saying, what is the goal of a lifetime of spiritual practice? It's a pretty key question you know, when we're giving time like this. What's, what's the goal? And the answer came, an appropriate response. You know, an appropriate response. You know, that sense of can we make, make part of our, our, our compassion practice part of our life practice? Cultivating our capacity for more and more appropriate responses to what we encounter in our lives, to the suffering we encounter in ourselves and to the suffering we encounter in others. And I'd invite you now to, to, to think of an occasion, to see if you can bring to mind an occasion when you have found an appropriate response, when, when you know that you've been able to say something or do something that somehow felt right, that somehow felt skillful, that, that another person clearly found helpful. Just see if you can bring an occasion like that to mind. And see, as you do that, see if you can can sense into what that felt like. Even what it felt like in the body. May have just been a glance. Sometimes when one asks people to do that, they go searching for some great heroic feat that they did that really <clears throat> you know, changed the course of someone's life. But I hope that part of what you were finding was that these moments are often very fleeting. They're just, as I say, a glance or a smile or a kind word or a, a hand on someone's arm. Mother Teresa said, it's not about doing great acts, it's about doing little acts with great love. And I hope that what you also noticed as you were tuning into what that felt like was that there was something uplifting about it. And this is 
this is a really key point because we sometimes think of compassion as being about sort of taking on the world's sorrows and it's got this sort of heavy perception about it that it's really opening our heart to tremendous grief and suffering. But actually compassion, the Buddha listed it as one of the four sublime, limitless, joyful, uplifting states. And when you really go into a moment of compassion and sense that, what it was like when you said that kind word to somebody or you you gave them a smile, there's so often a sense of uplift, isn't there? You know, there's a sense of uh, there's something quite light here. There's something even joyful about it. There's something lovely in the giving that is compassion. Uh, and so re- really want to encourage this sense of compassion as, as an uplifting practice. And if we look at the people who, who in some ways seem to embody or seem to be such good examples of compassion, people like the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu, or Nelson Mandela. These are people who know how to have a good time, aren't they? You know, these are people with a lot of joy. The Dalai Lama spends a lot of his day meeting people, days meeting people who have fled from Tibet and have got terrible stories. And he sits with them and he, and he weeps with them. And he also has this amazing capacity, doesn't he, for joy. And that's partly because he has this the, the wisdom, the equanimity that, that I was talking about um, that infuses the sense of compassion. And it's, it's also because compassion itself, the giving of compassion, is uplifting. It's lovely. It's a beautiful quality in the heart. Mother Teresa, in fact, see, used to see a capacity for joy as a really essential ingredient of anybody who was going to work um, with her for a long time, anybody who was going to become one of the sisters working with her, that if they couldn't find a joy in giving, she'd encourage them to, to, go and, you know, to go home and find their joy at home. Because a joy in giving is really essential for the sustainability of compassion. You know, what we see is that compassion is energizing. It's about a connection with life. And that that energy has an uplift about it. What we can also see, I think, in if, if you think of those times when you've, you've been able to offer something compassionate to somebody. Or if we think about those sort of embodiments of compassion we can see that, the, that there's a sense of balance there. And I think balance is really important in compassion. I've said a few times about this, this balancing internal and external, which you could describe as a sort of 50-50. And I think compassion for self balances with compassion for others. This is really important. You know, if you look, look at people who have a sustained practice of compassion, there is a sense that they are also looking after their own hearts and bodies. Compassion fatigue, as it's sometimes called, 
comes when we we forget that we we are a hundred percent out if you like uh, and we lose that sense of compassion for self for looking after ourselves for holding our own experience of body and heart with presence with tenderness with acceptance and with care and i'll say a little bit in a moment about some compassion practices What we can also see is that, that, as I was saying about forgiveness, that just as suffering ultimately has no owner, so compassion ultimately has no owner. Part of what can create a sense of disconnection is the sense of me here and that person over there. The first near enemy of compassion is is said to be pity. And these near enemies are states that, that compassion can easily slip into. And it can easily slip into pity, where we have a sense of there's me here and that person over there who's suffering. And I'm feeling sorry for them. Because there's an attachment to a sense of of self. Sometimes Ram Das writes so well about, about uh, people getting into helper syndrome, where they're going around looking for their next victim, who they're going to help. Uh, uh, and he, as he says, if somebody's being a helper, that means the other person has to be an, a helpee. You know? uh, and, and we can have that sense of, you know, there's me here trying to be you know, compassionate to this person over there. Uh, and that puts them in the role of helpee. And what we can really find is if we let go of that, let go of that self-view, and let there just be compassion and response. Sorry, just sorry, I beg your pardon. There just be suffering and response to suffering. So it doesn't have to be owned by anybody. We can really feel how that deepens the sense of presence. It deepens the sense of spaciousness. It deepens our capacity to be with what's difficult. Ultimately, we find, like I said with the metta, that that what we're doing is befriending moments in a certain way where there is suffering and we're seeking to meet that moment with an appropriate response of compassion. And working with these near enemies of pity, of grief, of anger, of fear, seeing how our compassion does slip into those modes or gets coloured by some of those qualities is part of the work of deepening the capacity of our hearts for compassion. It's part of our humanity. We're not expected to be somehow bisquick bodhisattvas, you know. And so seeing when, when we do get to an edge where actually we, you know, we're on a place of overwhelm and actually drawing back, giving compassion to ourselves, really looking after our own hearts, seeing how we may be identifying, have a very strong sense of self and other, 
That's all part of the work of deepening our capacity for compassion. And so, just finally, some some thoughts on compassion practices. Insight practice. You know, in insight practice, we're looking, aren't we, at suffering and the ending of suffering. We're really looking deeply into what does cause suffering and how can we find a way of releasing, letting go, bringing about an ending of that. And just that that insight, the more we see it in ourselves, we are in a sense... You know, we are what we obviously we can know and study best, and so we we see this process in ourselves, and that can really deepen a sense of compassion as we see suffering in others. We see how they're caught in pattern, in patterns of suffering. Compassion phrases may be very useful to us. So rather like we've been using meta phrases. You may like at some stage in your practice to use some phrases that are, are more oriented to the, that meeting with suffering. Phrases like, may you find peace. May you find healing. May you find ease in your heart. So phrases that, that we can use both for ourselves. You know, may I find peace. May I find healing. May I find ease in my heart for our own suffering but also directing to a sequence of categories in the way that we're doing in the meta practice. Some of you may be familiar with the practice of Tonglen, which particularly comes from the Tibetan tradition and which uh, that wonderful Tibetan teacher Pema Chodron is such a beautiful, and she, she gives such beautiful teachings about the compassion, the, the compassion practice of Tonglen, which involves breathing in a sense of the other person's suffering and offering back to them from the compassionate heart what that suffering needs. Or, and I love this beautiful inflection of it that she gives, when we ourselves are suffering, we can have that sense of, well, may I open to the sense of all those other people who are suffering a similar, in a similar way at this moment? Rather like Rob was saying last night, this, this awareness that our suffering is not unique. So may I open to that and may my patience with this suffering in some way lessen the sum of suffering in the world. So we breathe that, that in and then breathing out again that sense of patience or that sense of being with, acceptance, allowing, compassion. So that's, that's one of the practices that, that can be really helpful in deepening a sense of compassion, this practice of tonglen, or giving and taking. Again, the, 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 the working with, with bodhisattva energies, the devotion, devotional practices, whether that's to Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara, or indeed to Jesus, or some other figure of compassion from from. Uh, one's own religious background. Or indeed connecting with some of the sort of living bodhisattvas who I've mentioned. They may be, may be people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama or other people who you know, the, 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 the hidden bodhisattvas who we often meet in our lives who have a quality of compassion. The Buddha so often encourages spending time with people whose qualities uplift us and nourish us. 
So if we want to become more compassionate, spending time with the compassionate. Practicing compassion through service work is also a way of really deepening our capacity. As Rob was saying last night, our life and our hearts are in a sort of feedback loop. Sort of, you know, a compassionate heart leads to compassionate action. Compassionate action feeds the compassionate heart. And we'll be saying some more about this on the final day of the retreat. But, you know, making our, our work as a parent, as a carer, as a teacher, as a nurse, as a therapist, or voluntary work that we may do, uh, making that a really conscious part of our compassion practice. So this is a theme that we will be returning to um, as the retreat draws towards its close. But I'd like to finish now with with a poem that will be known to probably quite a number of people. Um, uh, And it's a poem with a title, Kindness. But I think it's really, when you, you hear it, it's really a poem about compassion. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Let's sit for a few moments together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.